Today on the Solomon's Corner Book Club, we're going to be talking about the introduction to Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And if you read The Captive Mind by Sheswath Miwosh, it was a very good preparation for this book. You will find a lot of themes in this book that we are going to cover today that are going to be more in-depth. We will be answering questions like, is it for the layman? As it's stated in the introduction or foreword by Roger. Also, we're going to be talking about how in earlier podcasts, we talked about Cartesianism being a central theme to many of the ills in our society, which Carl Truman affirms, which is always a nice thing when you don't have a PhD and and then somebody with a PhD comes along and writes a book saying, hey, that Cartesianism, it's a problem. Stick around for that and much more. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I am your host, Daniel Roberts, and I have a very, very important announcement, so don't you move to whatever podcast you have in the queue next. But I have just made this incredibly gorgeous bullet pen. Like, I'm not even joking. This thing is made out of a 30 caliber shell casing with chrome it's bolt action click. It is so freaking cool. I'm very excited about it. If you want to see those pictures and check it out, it is on my Twitter account at solomonscorner.com as well as at Thomistic Dan and Instagram and all those kinds of things. So don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow us on wherever you get your fun-filled trollery news. And also, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter at solomonscorner.com forward slash book club. You can get deals and updates on things. We'll be sure to send some pictures of the pen in there as well. Our 2023 guest list is starting to really turn out to be pretty, pretty solid. So without further ado, let's dive into Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you are like me, it is very helpful to read the foreword and the preface in order to get an idea of the target that the author is going to aim at and the inspiration for the book. I used to think that these were worthless to read. They are not worthless to read. And if you did not read it, you should really read it. In the foreword, Roger says that this book is something that they hoped would be for the layman. Spoiler alert, it's a hard book. If you are not initiated into the philosophical understanding of what Truman is going to try and put forward. Now, I think he does a good job trying to tie these ideas to everyday situations like, you know, he has an example of the 40-year-old virgin and, you know, with Steve Carell. He has pop culture references and examples that help take away some of the cutting academic jargon, you know, that can be very difficult to to understand without a dictionary or even in some cases just a Wikipedia page. <laughs> in the foreword, Rod Dreher says the purpose of this book was to try and write something for the layman. He says on page 12, I asked my friend Carl Truman, who shares my view of Reef's uh, importance and who is a thinker and writer of impressive lucidity, which Truman is, to write a book about Reef that explains to the laity why we need his insights to build a defense. And, and Reef is a uh, late sociologist and critic. He was an agnostic Jew 
who understood, as Dreyer says, with unusual perceptiveness, how the psychological uh, life of the modern man and its manifestation in the sexual revolution was the poison pill that was killing our religion and therefore our civilization. Rafe's prose is not easy to read, though, so the idea here was that somebody like Truman could come along and distill down the meaning of this difficult book to the rest of us. Unfortunately, this is a difficult read for for some people, which is why I hope that you will continue to read along with us because it is better to read books like this with a commentator or with a group of friends or listening to a podcast like this or whatever whatever you can do. You shouldn't read it alone because it's very easy to misunderstand. So if you are reading along, you can always go to our podcast page on our website and you can leave a comment. You can ask questions there. Whenever we post our episodes on the website, you can always post a comment there. And I know some of you are finding it, so that's exciting. So just be aware. If you have questions, send them to us on the website or mail at solomonscorner.com, and we will try and get you more in-depth understanding about the book. The gist of the introduction is essentially Christians oversimplifying the reasons why we are in this sexual revolution of what is a woman, basically, which is a fair criticism of of Christianity. But at the same time, for most of us, the whole reason why we have this book is because Christians do tend to oversimplify things, not because they're stupid, though, but because we are incredibly busy and we have a lot of obligations on our lives. And since this book is 407 pages of highly researched academic writing, clearly it wasn't very easy to distill this out into a way that was more, how would you say, pervasive or perspicuous throughout the entire culture so that everybody just understood it and therefore we wouldn't have this problem. So obviously Christians oversimplify things because that's how we survive in the world. If we tried to distill everything down into the analytical constituent parts and then internalize them and then operate in the world that way, we, w- we would have a little bit of a challenge of, you know, doing our day-to-day jobs. If there's one thing that I am a little wary of as we get into this book is if it's too much in the academic bubble to have a pragmatic value. Now, that's just me. I haven't read this book yet. Okay, so I'm reading this as, as we go. And I've put it in a request to Truman to come on the show. So hopefully he hears this, uh, if he listens to the show before he responds to me, that he'll hear this as a as a, a humble questioning, not so much as a, like an arrogant you know guy, because you know, what do I know? It's just the way I'm perceiving the book, is that for some of us in, in the workforce and in the day-to-day, how much of a practical application is there going to be, and is it worth the 400 pages as far as our time and effort and our money and investment? We'll see. I think that it is going to be for those who need to understand the intellectual basis for why we are dealing with this fight, but is this going to be something that you give out to somebody who's a new Christian or somebody who's just basically getting just looking for a quick and dirty understanding of what's going on in the culture? Probably not. This is going to be for somebody who really wants to understand and probably wants to plot out their own responses based on the foundational ideas that are causing the sexual revolution and causing this milieu of, well, asking what is your gender is totally and completely normal, uh, which it's not. So 
The last thing I want to talk about in the introduction is more of some of the criticisms he has on culture here. He says, because this was something that one of our readers actually brought up to me, and he, he said similar things. He says on page 29, um, and this this reader who's, who's reading along with us said, you know, that he hopes that Truman is going to deliver on what he says in this quote. Truman writes, Second, this book is not a lament for a lost golden age or even for the parlous state of culture as we now face it. Lamentation is popular in many conservative and Christian circles, and I have indulged in it a few times myself. Well, only a few times. Not not a lot, like the rest of us. <laughs> but yes, only a few times. And he says, the task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them, which I agree with. The question is, is he going to deliver on what he concludes with, which he says on page 31, what I offer here is essentially a prolegomenon, and that's a fancy word for introduction, to the many discussions that Christians and others need to have about the most pressing issues of our day particularly as they manifest themselves in the variety of ways in which the sexual revolution affects us personally, culturally, legally, theologically, ecclesiastically. That's a fancy word for church order or uh, church administration, uh, leadership, you know, the way that you conduct your pastoral ordinations. Do you have bishops or do you not have bishops? That's what that word means. My aim is to explain how and why certain notion of the self has come to dominate the culture of the West, why this self finds its most obvious manifestation in the transformation of sexual mores, which is another fancy word for morality, and what the wider implications of this transformation are and may well be in the future. Understanding the times is a precondition of responding appropriately to the times, and understanding the times requires a knowledge of the history that has led up to the present. This book is intended as a small contribution to that vital task. I agree 100%. And that's why I hope that you'll stick around through this longer, more difficult book that we're reading, because even though ideas may be difficult, that does not necessarily mean that we are not obligated to learn them. If it is vital to your life that you are going to have to learn a very, very complicated drug regimen in order to stay alive, well, you have to learn that because otherwise the consequences are dire. Now, as we come into this book, the question will be, will Truman actually deliver on this in a way that the average person can implement this? Or was this a book that he intended, that, that, act, that ended up becoming a book for his academic peers in order for them to have the intellectual confidence to stand strong in the universities or lawyers or congressmen? and those kinds of people. If that's what they mean by laity, then, well, who knows, you know, where we where we end up in our own personal lives after reading this book. But I still think that he's right, that we have an obligation to understand how we got here before we decide that we're just going to venture in like Don Quixote and start fighting windmills. So we come to chapter one. And one of the things that I'll say just right off the bat that I was surprised about is that he does not get into Mark Yarhouse, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But essentially what he's going to do in this first chapter, he's going to start with this idea of how did we get to the sexual revolution? How did we go from sex as an activity to sex as a sexuality 
is what he says on the first page. We may, while sex may pre- be presented today as a little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. And he's going to try and address how we got to this idea of blending sexuality and personality into the same thing. And I think he does a really good job on this. And that's not just because I felt very affirmed that he went to Descartes and he went to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and others. And so there was a lot of content, if you're new to Solomon's Corner, that we covered on our website. We wrote articles about it. We talked about Cartesianism. We talked about Maritain, who also wrote a very similar book, which I'm kind of curious if he's actually going to bring up. I didn't check in the index. Let me just see real fast if he actually brings up Maritain in here, because Maritain wrote a book called The Three Three Reformations, I think is what it's called, and he talks about Luther, Descartes, and Rousseau, and Luther was the theological reformation, Descartes was the philosophical reformation, and Rousseau was the ethical reformation in in that view. And I'm looking here to see if he is in this thing. I don't think I don't think he covered him, which is very surprising. Wow, he didn't cover him. It's a little bit surprising because Maritain also was a natural law thinker and had a lot of things. And he brings up Thomism in the book, and Maritain was a pretty influential Thomist, although he also was kind of leaned socialist, so maybe that was a big part of it. So there's two main ideas in this chapter, which is going to be, be, you know, mimesis and poesis. And mimesis is the idea that you are influenced from the external world on yourself. He calls it the mimetic view. And he says it regards the world as having a given order and given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poesis by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So think the idea of you being influenced by the world outside of you, that it's having an impact on you, you know, nature versus, well, not nature versus nurture, because both of those are impacting you. But the idea that there is an external force working on you and forming you versus the idea that your perceptions of the world is ultimately what brings meaning and existence. So the idea is, in a mimetic view, there's meaning and existence in the world to be received. In a poesis view, you're going to create that meaning yourself. Uh, he says, by way of contrast, we sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. We see on this page as well, he's going to mention this, and he's going to focus really hard on the poesis side of things. And he's going to say technology is a big reason why this whole thing has started to come about. And I, I think actually he may underestimate the technology piece a little bit. I don't necessarily fault people in the academic and philosophical world for doing this. And I, I don't know Dr. Truman's background, so this could be me just speculating out of nowhere. But I doubt that he was an application developer prior to becoming a professor or a PhD in these things. But the technology piece, I think people have underestimated significantly because most people don't work on the back end of these applications and the way that these technologies work and influence people. And so a lot of times they kind of give these generalizations. So they'll talk about, for example, contraception or airplanes or going into space. And and those are really impressive in the sense that they have they have become milestones in the culture that everybody can recognize. But the idea that, for example, artificial intelligence, like I don't really 
use that on a day-to-day basis as an application developer, but it's always kind of in my newsfeed of the new things that it can do and the ways that it's manipulating data and other applications that it can be used for. But even more so than that, if you're an application developer, you're sitting in oftentimes in product demos where you're learning about the latest and greatest stuff. And so one time I was at a conference where one of the big companies came forward and said that they had an artificial intelligence that could write blog articles, and it was already in the first Fortune 100 companies currently in beta. And they estimated that marketing departments were going to shut down to like, you know, drop from 36 people to, to six people. This kind of replacement power in technology is really unprecedented. And a lot of people, I don't think they understand how much this is having an impact on the psychology of man and how plastic man is, which this ties right into Miwosh because Miwosh at the very end of his book says technology is more subversive on religion than violence. So much so that you can't even shut down all the churches because otherwise the churches would revolt. And what we talked about last time on the book club, as we closed out Miwosh was the fact that Miwosh actually didn't realize how powerful technology was because if he did, he would have said eventually they will be able to shut down all the churches because technology will come in and subvert religion so much that it will actually enable people to just shut down the churches. And nobody could have predicted that. It's not a dig at Miwosh. But the reality is that the global governments of the world worked in concert and did actually suddenly shut down all of the churches and religious institutions around the world. Now, not everybody complied, but in general, from a political power standpoint, they were successful in doing that. And on page 39, we see a quote from Truman about the impact of technology. The way this occurred is fairly simple to discern. First, there was the promiscuous behavior of the sexual revolution. Then there was technology to facilitate it in the form of contraception and antibiotics. And as technology enabled the sexually promiscuous to avoid the natural consequences of their actions, unwanted pregnancies, disease, so those rationales that justified the behavior became more plausible and arguments against it became less so, and therefore the behavior itself became more acceptable. And of course, obviously in this, I'm not trying to, in the previous discussion about AI and those kinds of things, I'm not saying that Truman is wrong to bring up contraception. Obviously, the contraception preceded the sexual revolution. Now, one of the things that's odd about this is that he later talks about technology again on page 41, and he says, this has much broader significance than matters such as agriculture. And this is where he gets into the more technological advancements outside of contraception. So you have technology influencing contraception, and then you're moving into more broader impacts of technology like we talked about with AI and applications and things like that. More controversially, the most recent development of genetics has allowed for the production of foods that are immune to certain conditions or parasites. I could go on, but the point is clear. Whether we consider certain innovations to be good or bad, technology affects in profound ways how we think about the world and imagine our place in it. That's great. That is 100% correct. Today's world is not the objectively authoritative place that it was 800 years ago. We think of it much more as a case of raw material that we can manipulate by our own power to our own purpose. Again, this is that poesis that he's alluding to here. 
This has a much broader significance than matters such as agriculture. The development of the automobile and then the aircraft served to shatter the previous authority of geographical space. Now, it's interesting because I wrote in my margin, Hannah Arendt and C.S. Lewis, and anybody who followed along with us when we first started Book Club, we started halfway through The Human Condition on Hannah Arendt, and C.S. Lewis is uh, that hideous strength in Abolition of Man. In Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis also references Konzerschefsen and uh, and aircraft and the wireless, and Hannah Arendt does a very similar analysis in The Human Condition, and she talks about Sputnik in the very first pages there, and she also goes into the impact that that had in terms of man eventually, as far as airplanes go, in a phenomenological sense, being able to temporarily leave his boundaries of Earth. And then in Homo Deus, we talked about that. This is Yuval Noah Harari's. He also talks about the same technological advances. And so what we're seeing here is a theme. And as Jordan Peterson said, and I can't remember where he said this, so if somebody knows, please send it to me. But at one point in one of his interviews, he mentioned that if you see somebody, if you see a truth claim that pops up across time and culture and persons, there's a good chance that it's true. And so we oftentimes look at aircrafts and automobiles and contraceptions, and we just take them for granted. But they radically changed the entire uh, perception of how much man's nature could be molded and manipulated and changed with technology. And this is why Miłosz, who also recognized this, again, you got a Polish person, you got an English person who became American, you got Hannah Arendt, who's a Jewish exile who comes over to the United States, you got C.S. Lewis, who's an English guy around uh, uh, Miłosz's time, he would have been alive during Miłosz's writing, probably would have read it as well. I think, did he die in 1951? Can you check for me? Check when C.S. Lewis. So I think you're right, because Kennedy uh, was assassinated, so he was definitely alive. As we continue on here, one of the things that you're going to see is that we move into this shift of mimesis to poesis. That's what happens, and I think I'm saying mimesis and poesis, right? Sounds like alcoholic drinks, you know. Uh, bartender, I'll take a mimesis on the rocks, and uh, why don't I chase it with a poesis, you know? I want to wake up feeling self-expressed. So he's going to focus on Charles Taylor and and, and Reif, uh, the, these two thinkers. But the big thing that I think is important, and again, I'm assuming some of you have read this, but what he's going to get at is this idea that we've moved into this Cartesian thought experiment that was accelerated into the morality area with Foucault and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Freud and Marx have this sexual identity becoming the basis for who we are as as individuals and the the elevation of the individual and self-expression and that when that is not identified it is felt to be like you don't exist and this is important to the transgender community. Now, one of the things that I'm surprised about in the book is that he didn't talk about Mark Yarhouse at all. Now, maybe he does, but he's not mentioned in the index. But Mark Yarhouse wrote a book called Gender Dysphoria, I think. Can you check the the book title on that? Mark Yarhouse wrote a a book um, on gender dysphoria, and Lindsay's checking for me on the title right now. But Yarhouse was is a Christian therapist, I believe. I'm not sure if he's a psychologist, but he, he's Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Navigating Transgender Issues in a Changing Culture. And in that book, he 
asserts a lot of the same things that Truman is asserting here. Like, for example, on page 45, Truman writes, Who are the characters in the Canterbury Tales? Each obviously has his or her own individual existence and profession, but above all, they are pilgrims who find their sense of identity in a communal context as they participate in a religiously motivated journey to Canterbury. He continues on this kind of theme of, you know, needing a community. And in page 57, he's quoting Taylor on the general feature of human life that I want to evoke is its fundamentally dialogical character. So again, those of us who were reading along with the captive mind, we did a whole thing on dialectical materialism, which is what dialogical character is. It's dialectism. It's this idea of the spirit and the matter constantly in dialogue with each other because they are contradictory and that tension creates meaning. We become full human agents capable of understanding ourselves and hence defining an identity through our acquisition of rich human languages of expression. I want to take language in a broad sense, covering not only the words we speak, but also other modes of expression whereby we define ourselves, including the languages of art, of gesture, of love, and the like. But we are indicated into these in exchange with others. No one acquires the languages needed for self-definition on their own. We are introduced to them through exchanges with others who matter to us. This is mimetic, but it's also dialectic in the sense that your self-actualization or self-definition is concretized or codified when someone else acknowledges you. And he's going to give a bunch of examples of like, you know, when kids are picking kids at the playground and they feel like they're recognized. But on the same page, page 57, further down, he says, this also connects to another point, the human need to belong. If our identities are shaped by our connection and, and to and interaction with significant others, then identity also arises in the context of belonging. To have an identity means that I am being acknowledged by others. To wander through town and to be ignored by everyone I encounter would understandably lead me to question whether they considered me to be a non-person or at least a person unworthy of acknowledgement. If I am treated by everyone I encounter as if I am worthless, I will probably end up feeling that I am worthless. And so this is where your house would come in, which I think is interesting because Truman is kind of coming at this from the philosophical and your house is coming at it from the clinical. And so your house actually comes to the same conclusion that the transgender community is looking for this sense of belonging and community and meaning and what we're going to find in this self-expression as it's become the the forefront of everybody's mind i think that and i think truman's going to get into it but it's definitely infiltrated our churches because we can see this when we think about the idea of my god and my jesus because what you're really doing when you do that is you're putting Jesus into your image. So on page 48, the ancient Athenian was committed to assembly, the medieval Christian to his church, and the 20th century factory worker to his trade union and working man's club. All of them found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. In the world of psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self as and is inwardly directed. Thus, the order is reversed. Outward institutions become, in effect, the servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. So now it's not, well, why do you go to church? Well, because I want to, I want to serve the church. It's because, well, because that church makes me feel good. Or you, you'll hear Christians sometimes say, well, my God wouldn't do that. And really what they're saying is God wouldn't do that because I wouldn't do that. But God usually does what he wants to do, and we usually have to get in line. 
or my Jesus, for example. This, I think, is also a symptom, and Truman doesn't say this, but this is just kind of my own experience. I think this is also a symptom of that inward idolatry of self, this idea of the self coming to the forefront, that it's becoming so prominent that even Christians are adopting this, even if they're not in the sexual revolution category, they are still speaking the language of the inward self, even in their Bible reading, even in their worship, or even in their prayer life, because ultimately they're worshiping God, worshiping a God that they've made in their own image, because they started with their own self-image, and they worshiped their self-image, and this was projected onto God. And so they read Bible verses and think of God in terms of how they can relate to God, not how they need to change in order to become the creature God wants them to become, because, well, that's really hard. So when God says, be holy as I am holy, well, he didn't really mean that. That's just a hard, a real high bar. Well, I don't know. Seems seems like he put it in there for a reason. And it would seem that if there's definitely evidence to say that that is more actually a command that we are expected to at least attempt and actually to change ourselves in order to become closer to that ideal, well, the sexual revolution and the ideas that Truman has put forward in this chapter definitely show that to not do that and to not live that way and to live as if our self-expression and our unique identity is paramount to having a meaningful life, well, it's definitely seeming to cause some bankrupt ideas. We're getting close to the end here, but there's one more thing I wanted to bring up, and that was on the Cartesian side of things. And so we have actually talked about this quite a bit, as well as the, the Hegelian dialectic. And so if we go to page 59... Truman starts to talk about Hegel and the dialectic, and he says on page 59, well, I'm going to start on page 58, this dialogical dimension, again, dialogical just means dialogue, okay, so this kind of discussion back and forth, the dialogical dimension of identity also points to another aspect of modern selfhood. There is for sure a deep desire in the modern West for self-expression to perform in public in a manner consistent with that which one feels or thinks one is on the inside. That is the essence of authenticity, as I will note in the thought of Rousseau in chapter three. Now, this idea of performing in public, this is interesting because Hannah Arendt talks about the public and private distinction. We have episodes on that. Highly recommend you go back and listen to them. It will help you learn some of these, uh, be able to read Truman a little bit more clearly if you go back and listen to some of our commentary on some of the previous books we've done, because it, and I didn't intend for it to do, to do this, but these books all are helping me understand Truman better because we just happen to pick a really solid slew of books that just happen to weave into each other. So uh, the idea, though, of, of Hegelian dialectics and, and public-private distinctions, these are all things that we've talked about in previous, previous book club episodes. So that's great. So we move on to, to Hegel, and Hegel, again, is the guy who's going to precede Karl Marx with his Hegelian dialectic, which will eventually become the materialist dialectic with Karl Marx and Engels, and ultimately lead to uh, political hell. Frederick Newhouse is summarizing Taylor here, so in, in Hegel terms. And Taylor is one of the, one of the psychologists that Truman is, is discussing. Taylor's argument is that Hegel's social philosophy attempted to satisfy two aspirations bequeathed to us by the Enlightenment and its romantic successors. Aspiration to radical autonomy, this would be the spirit, and to expressive unity with nature and society, the matter. So again, the Hegelian dialectic, if you remember when our previous episodes, is the idea of the spirit and matter. They are opposites of each other, 
and they are constantly fighting each other in this tension, this tense dialogue back and forth. Marxism ultimately says, matter usurps spirit. Hegel begins the most famous section of the phenomenology of spirit on the relationship between master and slave with the following statement, self-conscious exists, self-consciousness exists in and for itself when and by the fact that it so exists for another, that is, it exists only in being acknowledged. And this is why you need somebody like Truman, because nobody who nobody will take the time to understand Hegel. And this is why you need professors, and we need to pay them well so that they will go and do this for us. <laughs> what Hegel means by this is that self-consciousness is found only in a fully developed form where two self two such self-consciousnesses recognize each other as mutually recognizing each other. That is a rather convoluted and inelegant way, which I really appreciate, by the way, because a lot of times these really hard-to-understand philosophers, it seems like they just get awarded, rewarded for having incoherent thoughts. But anyway inelegant way of saying that a human being is most self-conscious when she knows that other people are acknowledging her as a self-conscious being. And this is going to be key to his thought. If we choose not to acknowledge her and her being, which for the transgender or for the homosexual is going to be their gay or transgender lifestyle. And I understand that there's a, there is a infight right now between the LGBT, the LG and the, uh, the T in the, in the community. But the idea that your sexual behavior is your identity does have the same philosophical roots, meaning individual preference is what is supreme. And so we see on page 65 that we're going to come to this idea of Cartesianism, which ultimately leads to the elevation of self. Before we get there, though, one last thing on technology, and this, this is really good. I thought this was great. The rise of technology is clearly important to the demolition of old hierarchies, changing the relationship of human beings to their environment and transforming economic relationships between individuals. I might also add that the kind of skills technology demanded and still demands came to favor the young who were able to learn and adapt more easily. One has only to look at how the current IT industry is often dominated by young free-thinking, entrepreneurial types to see how even the former but still relatively recent hierarchies of the business world have been attenuated, which is a fancy word for weakened, and even rendered superfluous. Rigid social hierarchies that embodied and enforced honor codes have been made impractical and plausible in modern capitalist society, as Karl Marx and Frederick Engels observed long ago in the Communist Manifesto. And this is, this is, this is brilliant, because as an application developer, which is what I do, we are social engineers, and that is what we do. We, we, we influence human behavior without them really knowing that we're influencing it, and that's our job. So sometimes we'll build a form, and everything will be optional. And then after we get data from that form, we'll decide to make a couple fields required. And what we're doing is, is we're engineering behavior slowly and steadily to what we want. And this is done whether you work at a small mom and pop contract web development shop where you're just doing you know, websites on the side or if you're working at a big enterprise. Your goal is to force the user to do something that you want them to do without them realizing they're being forced to do it. And if they have to be alerted, then great. But at the end of the day, you hope that the, the roadblocks that you create are going to basically function as a rat in a maze trying to get cheese. They're going to bump into zappers and buzzers and things like that, but eventually they're going to get to the cheese and you're going to get paid because they did. 
And so this is ultimately controlling human behavior through application development, which leads to a lot of social engineering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we come now to the Cartesian piece, which is what we're going to close on. And it says here, for example, while the epistemology of Descartes might not at first glance appear to have great political significance, it effectively moved the individual knowing subject to the center. And this move surely found its most eloquent psychological expression in the work of Rousseau, for whom society and culture were the problems, the things that corrupted the individual and prevented him from being truly authentic. Now, in de Tocqueville's Democracy of America, he has a great quote in there where he says that Americans are the most Cartesian culture he's ever met, but have never read Descartes. And we need to understand the significance of de Tocqueville's statement here and what Truman is saying here too. The seeds of Descartes were, were planted way before Truman, me, or anybody else were alive today. And when de Tocqueville wrote that, it was 1836. So we're talking about over 150 years time, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah, over 150 years. So we're looking at, yeah, almost 170 years. My producer's helping me with math. And when we, when we look at it from that standpoint, we realize, oh, wow, this is how long it takes for a philosophical idea to really go off the rails. And all philosophical systems can go off the rails. They're not, there's no perfect philosophical system out there because people aren't perfect. You can have an Aristotelian become so rigid in the idea of natures that they believe that nobody could ever not want to be a slave. This is a problem. Uh, you can have Cartesianism be a healthy form of skepticism in which you don't get sucked into cults and things like that. Or it could make you question your gender identity. All philosophical systems can be taken to an extreme. Our job as good thinkers is to find the nuggets of truth within those systems and apply them into our own intellectual framework and system. And so the fact that Truman is bringing up Descartes is really, really good, in my opinion, because it affirms that somebody smarter than me also saw the same trend, and therefore I should keep pressing forward. When we get to the end of this chapter, we get to page 70, he reaffirms this idea. And he says, while it may seem far-fetched to connect, say, Descartes' grounding of certainty in his consciousness of his own doubting to claims of contemporary transgender activists that sex and gender are separable, in fact, both represent a psychological approach to reality. How the world moves from one to the other is long and complicated story, but the two are connected. And one does not have to read Descartes or Judith Butler to think intuitively about the world in terms for which they provide the theoretical rationale. This is, this is really important for us to understand because if this is true, that Descartes has this much of an influence on culture, it is very probable that Descartes has had an influence on how you pastor your church, how you read your Bible, how you apply the text, all of those factors. And it's very important that pastors especially read books like what Truman has here because he's going to help you understand how philosophy, you can avoid it all you want. Just like de Tocqueville said, all these people had no idea who Descartes was, but they were living his philosophy every day of the week. You are being influenced by a philosophical system or a set of philosophical ideas, whether you want to be or not, because it's not a worldview. It's the way you approach existence. And that is ultimately a philosophical question. I don't like using worldview anymore because people oftentimes associate it with religion. doesn't mean that it didn't serve its purpose prior to this or that there weren't good reasons to use that word, 
but ultimately it's philosophical. You are a philosopher. Whether you want to take that label or not, you have certain presuppositions about the way the world works, why things are the way they are, all of those things. And those are ultimately metaphysical prior to any sort of religion, prior to any other uh, classes that you've taken, because they're based on your experience with the world and with people. And that is all happening within a context where there is a current king philosophical system. And if we are living in a, a, the, the, the philosophical system that we are currently living in that's dominating our current perspective, it is some form of Cartesianism. And maybe Truman will show us a more modern person down the road. But needless to say, if you had any doubts about whether or not dialectical materialism was important or relevant to any of the conversations that we've had prior to reading this book, Truman can be your intellectual authority to show, yes, dialectical materialism is alive and well. The dialogues between spirit and matter, like we talked about in previous ones, are having an impact. And now we're going to read a book that's going to not go into the idea of like CRT or other critical theories or Marxist theories. We're going to go into it on the sexual revolution. And I hope that you'll continue to read with us, even though this is going to be a tough book. Make sure you send us your comments and thoughts so that you can get them answered, because this is going to be one that we're going to have to work through together and we'll all benefit if we all participate. So without further ado, I appreciate you coming on this journey with us, and I hope to see you next week at the book club. Thanks again. Keep thinking.